Hello and welcome to Earliest Years of Life. Hi, I'm Zachary Yassin and for the last 15 years I have worked with Bradford's babies, young children and their families. My name's Kerry Bennett and I'm currently working here at Better Start Bradford but my background is in health visiting and children's nursing. This series looks at how babies' earliest months and years gives them the vital tools to help them through the rest of their life. In this episode, we'll be exploring how the earliest years of life give us the tools we use to navigate the challenges of childhood, adolescence and adulthood. To hopefully answer the question, what is attachment and why does it matter? So our guest today is a research scientist fascinated by babies' innate capacity to connect. Based in the psychology department at the University of Dundee, Dr Suzanne Zedike has published over 50 papers on this subject, including What's Life Like in a Baby Buggy? She is also founder of the Connected Baby Organisation, helping parents and professionals make practical use of the science of connection. And she works internationally with organisations who are keen to think more deeply about fostering connection, compassion and resilience. So, Suzanne, thanks for joining us today. I am so delighted to be here to talk about babies and attachment and relationships and all these things that I think are so fascinating. So it's lovely to be able to see you, Suzanne, whilst we do the the podcast. I'm just fascinated to learn a little bit more about your choice of headphones this afternoon. (laughs) Well, since the listeners won't be able to see me, perhaps they would like to envision me sitting here with a pair of gigantic white headphones on. I feel a bit like a stormtrooper from Star Wars. And it's simply because we were trying to make the tech as absolutely superb as we can for listeners in today's world when, you know, we're all in lockdown and COVID has made me think a lot about connection. And so, On this occasion, I was trying to make the tech as good as I can, even though I'm not sure this is my best look. I think this could be a start of a new fashion trend set by Suzanne Zedike. Why not? (laughs) Exactly. I don't think so. I'm not sure this is a fashion trend that I want to set. (laughs) Well, you look and sound fantastic today. It helps us to talk about connections and babies and relationships. I'm delighted I think that sort of leads us on to our first question. Tell us in simple terms what attachment means. Oh, I could talk about this for forever, guys. Attachment is a fancy scientific term, basically for connection, for human beings' ability to connect and our need for connection. And so everything that I talk about starts in this one key idea that babies are born already connected to other people. And so that means that we now know through scientific experiments and research, for instance, that babies already know the voices of the people who are gonna be in their world when they're still in the womb. I think this is fascinating that we are built biologically so that we can already hear the voices of our mother and our father, if he's there every day, and our big brother, and our big sister, and maybe our granda, or our nan, or our Auntie Josephine. If, if they are in our world every day, even when you're in the womb, you know the voices of the people who are going to be in your world. That's how built for connection we are. Babies are born expecting to see eyes and a nose and a mouth on faces. We come with a neurological expectation of that. It's unconscious, of course. Um, We come really tuned in to other people's touch and the rhythm of their voice. 
So getting that idea that human beings are wired for connection and that it's built into us biologically is what attachment is. And one of the things that we now know is that babies stay really in, tuned into that and they make sense of what other people are doing and that becomes wired into us biologically. So if other people pay attention to us, when, when we have needs, and we'll come on to that in a minute, I know, then we experience the world as trustworthy. We know other people pay attention to us. But if people don't do that, then we begin to have a different expectation of other people and of the world, and it feels a bit more scary. And that has a biological impact on us, on our expectations about relationships, and on our ability to manage our own emotions. That's what attachment is. I think of it as saber-toothed tigers and teddy bears. So saber-toothed tiger system in our body lets us deal with threat and alert and anxiety and fear. And we have systems in our body that help us to do that. And we also have a system in our body that I call the teddy bear system that helps us to calm down and feel safe and relaxed. And here's the thing. Some babies and young children have experiences that mean they spend a lot more time in their saber-toothed tiger system than their teddy bear system. All of us are spending a lot more time in our saber-toothed tiger system during COVID while we're disconnected from people that we love and that we want to see. Thinking about that is essentially the thinking that goes into the heart of attachment. How do we get out of our saber-toothed tiger system so that that's not our default? What can we do to help us all to get back into our teddy bear systems so that we can calm and relax and we don't create too much stress for our bodies? Because if you have lots of stress, that has other worrying impacts. And there are lots of things you can do to get back into your teddy bear system. But many people don't know that. And many parents and, and professionals may not realize how important the interactions that they have with babies are. I was just going to ask that. Do you think that the understanding around the importance of attachment is really truly being understood by professionals and, and parents? Do you feel through the work that, that you've done, do you feel that there is a shift in understanding around that now? Do you know what? I want to say yes. And I also need to say no. Okay. Which makes it fascinating, the situation that we're in at the moment, fascinating. We have known about attachment as a science for since the 1930s. That was when scientists first began to study what became known as attachment. During the war, during the evacuation of children during the war, because they wanted children to leave the cities that were being bombed and to go to the countryside where it was felt to be safer. And what people, what some psychologists and psychiatrists at the time began to realize was that actually children who were separated from people that they loved suffered. And for some children, that suffering continued through the whole of their life and it left a real biological impact, especially for the youngest children. Policymakers didn't know that then. People were intending to do things that were good for children. And because there were things they didn't know, they actually had damaging impacts. And I think that's something really important for us to think about, that 
If we don't know how important relationships are, we can make decisions that are well-intentioned for our children as parents, as practitioners, as policymakers, but they have a lasting impact that can cause harm. This is a scary thing to think about. And it's one of the reasons I think that we sometimes have trouble really getting to grips with what attachment tells us. So if I move us into today's world, which is what you just asked about, ever since the 1930s, people have been interested in attachment, or some people have been, but not everybody knows. And sometimes even if you know the term, you don't really get what it means. So you guys are interested in attachment. You've got me on to talk on this podcast. <laughs> You've had me in in Bradford to provide training. There are other local authorities. There are many nurseries. There are many schools. There are care homes. So in other words, this is not just about babies. This is about human beings. And so at the other end of the life spectrum, there are care homes that are interested in this. I am delighted by all of that. But not everybody gets it. And I think sometimes not everybody is interested, which is a scary, edgy thing to say, but it helps us to really address your question. Do I think there is a renewed interest? There is on some people's part. Let me give an example. So this is where I'm going to say one of the edgy, scary things that I sometimes say, but I think it helps us to really think about this. Currently, the government is providing funding for nurseries in early years settings. What many people running early years settings have tried to say is that the money that's being provided isn't enough to provide a really high quality service. And so here is the thing that is scary. If you don't provide a high quality service with enough staff to pay attention to baby's needs, and to comfort them if they need holding all day long. If you don't provide enough money for that, then you have a biological impact on children's emotional systems and their stress systems. And I think very often this is an area of policy that we don't really get that. I totally agree with you. It really frustrates me as well. And I do feel that we talk about prevention and early years investment and getting it, you know, the foundations right. But funding seems to go directly to sort of reactive services rather than than really preventative services. So here is one of the questions to ask ourselves. Is that due to, I often narrow it down to three things. Either people don't know this information like the 1930s folks who organized evacuation, they just didn't know that it could be doing harm. And so if that's the problem, we need to get this information out to people. Secondly, sometimes people think they get it, they know the terms, but they don't really get it. In other words, they have not thought more deeply about the ratios in earlier settings or about the impact of prams and strollers on infant brain development. That's huge, isn't it? It's huge. Or the idea that lots of his talk about, you know, sleep training. Sleep training is a huge issue for new parents. And it's a thing that parents talk about a lot. The idea that sleep and the way parents respond to their children in sleeping would have an impact on their brain development and the development of their of their body, of their stress systems in their body, is not something that all parents know. And that even if you've heard about attachment, you might not have thought it extends to sleep. 
So that's a different problem. We need to think about new ways to talk about attachment and to help people to think about what it means, how important relationships are. I think that's really important and it's getting that balance, isn't it? And I think I've heard you say before about, you know, that we don't want to go in and educate. We want parents to be confident in their knowledge through curiosity. And I, I really love that about the wonder and curiosity of their child. And do you think that that's the way that we need to support parents making those connections between sleep and attachments? I think so. Parents get an awful lot of pressure these days. Definitely. <laughs> Parents get so much education, parents get all this pressure to parent right. I actually think that that drives up anxiety levels, and I don't think that's helpful to anybody. So when I talk about this stuff, I talk about how babies develop, because I think that that's fascinating for parents. I think there's so much in there that it takes you to a place of wonder. And so if you start from there, then parents can step in and can ask more about what kind of care babies need. And they can be more confident about what they need to know, about what they don't know, that it's okay to not know everything. It's even okay to have got things, quote, wrong. No baby comes with a textbook, do they? Every baby is so different. Um, but then we expect parents, and I'm doing that with the inverted comments of getting it right when I when I say that and, and what is right and what is wrong. But there isn't just one size fits all, is there? But like you say, if we can try and create that curiosity and wonder and help them ask those questions and really understand what's it about for their child and them in their home situation and their certain situation, that's what we should be doing rather than the right and the wrong. Yeah. And I think we can help them to know some key ideas which help to provide reassurance. So let me give you one. There's this thing in science called the rupture repair cycle. So it has a fancy scientific name. Um, but what it means is that it, it's okay if you have tense moments. It's okay if you get it wrong. It's okay if you get sharp. It's okay if you fall out. Lots of parents can feel anxious about that, but what the science tells us is that that happens all the time in relationships. You don't have to be tuned into your baby 24-7. In fact, that isn't helpful to babies. Where we need to pay attention is not in the, what I call the messing up, the disconnection. Where we need to pay attention is in the making up, is in the reconnection. So if Things don't go smoothly and things never go smoothly. Babies don't need things to go smoothly all the time. What they need is that where they go unsmoothly, that you come back to smoothly. What relationships between grown-ups need is that when you have an argument, you can make up. What grown-ups need is that if you have feelings that you want to talk out, that you be able to talk those out with the people who matter to you. And we come from a culture that isn't always very good at that. And that's one idea that the wider science offers us that I think helps everybody to relax. Making up is more important than messing up. And if you know that little idea, you might go, oh, that sounds really interesting. I would like to know more. And you can step into it rather than being told what to do. Do you think that as professionals that we do actually get attachment? So whether you're a health visitor, an early years worker, a midwife, whatever your, your role is in the early years, do we get it? I think it's a really important question and I'm going to change one of those words 
In this case, I'm not sure there is a we. So I think some people across the professions understand this and get it. And I think some other people struggle more with it. So let me give an example. I recently had a mother of a two-week-old baby who got in touch to say that her health visitor had advised her not to pick up the baby because she would make a rod for her own back. And I felt very sad because we now know that not picking up a baby, especially a baby that young, means that they are learning that the world is a scary place. Now, traditionally in British society, we saw that as encouraging independence. So we can think that we're doing something really positive. And I'm sure that there are health visitors who were trained some time ago when that was the advice. Here's the interesting thing. The advice has now changed. Young babies need picked up when they cry. And so what happens when you learn that the training that you had and the new insights that you had, that's changed quite a lot. That takes courage to really think about. So the fact that I had that story just this week tells me that no, not everybody gets it. The question is, how do we have more opportunities to talk about this? How do we have more podcasts just like this one? Because here's another thing we need to think about. We need to have more attuned drop-offs and pickups at nursery. Very often, those cause much more distress for children than people mean to and then people realize. So I think in that regard, we kind of don't get it in early years. How can we help people to think about that without feeling guilty or ashamed and instead move them to curiosity? What sprung to mind there as a health visitor and some of the advice that I've given or, or heard and with the, the science and all the, the training that we're lucky to have here in, in Bradford, such as our Little Minds Matter service and the Ready to Relate and really supporting our practitioners to understand that and the evidence and the science to give the correct information. I think we're, we, we're lucky here in Bradford, but just thinking about some of the diverse communities that we, we work with as well. And when we say about the professionals get it, would you say that there's cultures that get attunement better than, is better the right word? I don't know if it is, but if they, if it comes more naturally to them, um, have you got any experience of seeing that? I don't know if that's the right question to ask, but it just feels that's, that's, that's a really good question. And it's something I, that was kind of going through my mind. Um, just, I think just to add to that is where are we as a British society in that if, if we're, if we're kind of exploring, do some do attunement better or yeah. not? Are we right in using the word better? Can you correct us there? You know? <laughs> <laughs> we're looking at each other as if, I don't know if to say that, but how do we, how do we explain it? <laughs> Guys, I love that question. I love that you're even going, is better the right word? Lots and lots of curiosity helps us to talk about all of this because it's tricky because it's sore, because we so easily go to a place of shame and anxiety and embarrassment and judgment. And none of that helps parents. It doesn't help babies. It doesn't help professionals. It doesn't help anybody. Human babies are born immature. They, they don't have a stress system, a biology that lets them handle their emotions. Now they feel scared. They feel bored. They feel cold. They feel hot. They feel lonely. They feel excited. All of those are emotions that we would all be familiar with. What lots of people don't quite realize is they are embedded in the body. 
emotions are biological states, which becomes really fascinating to think, hmm, fear is in the body in the same way that being cold is or being hungry is or being bored is or being lonely is. Somehow we come traditionally British culture has like somehow made physical things like hunger and cold separate from lonely, overwhelmed and excited. And they're not, they're all embedded in the body. But the thing about human babies is that they don't have a biological system that lets them handle those emotions on their own. As soon as they get uncomfortable in the body, they need help from another grown up. And then the capacity to handle those emotions, your biology develops, and your capacity to handle them gets better if you've had help handling them. So what that means is that the development of your self-regulatory system, your stress management, is based in relationships. In other words, in order to self-regulate, you need first to be to have co-regulation. I'm trying to use some fancy terms so that people realize that there are science around this and therefore helps us to take it more seriously. So children at school, if we switch to an older age just for a minute, children at school who kick off and we come from a culture that might have them in an isolation booth and we think about bad behavior, that behavior is underpinned by emotions. And for children who had scary times in babyhood because their family was chaotic, because there was domestic violence going on in their household, because their mother was overwhelmed, because their mom was depressed, because their dad drank. All of those are really standard experiences in lots of families. If you had those experiences as a young child, you spent a lot of time in your saber-toothed tiger system. It means that it's a bit more fragile and that when you get to school, you will have more difficulty managing your emotions and you'll need help. So your teacher can help with that. Other adults in the school can help with that if you know this stuff. But lots of times people don't know this. We see the behavior and we treat it as bad. This stuff helps us to rethink that. All of us, I think, deserve to know this and need this understanding. We didn't used to need to know it. I think a long time ago in human evolutionary history, an awful lot of babies' needs were met automatically. So for instance, Babies slept next to their parents. They didn't sleep down the corridor. Babies weren't carried and transported in strollers because there was no such thing as a stroller. For most of human evolutionary history, babies were carried on their parents' bodies. So nobody needed to know about attachment. Babies' needs just got met. In today's world, we have tech and we have you know ways of being with children like in nurseries that change the kinds of relationships they can have, and therefore knowledge helps. And let me say one other thing there. Your question a minute ago was about cultures. There are some cultures who would never let a baby cry. British culture believes more in letting babies cry, and we have ideas about that. So some cultures do have, kind of naturally without knowing it, tune in to babies' needs in different ways. And understanding that our culture has ideas about babies, which shape how we interact with them, helps to explain where some of our cultural styles of relating come from. And that in itself is a whole nother podcast, but begins to raise interesting questions in a multicultural Britain and any multicultural society. I have a really good colleague who is from India, 
and she slept in her parents' bedroom until she was in her teens, because that was just normal in India. The idea that you would sleep down the corridor, even if you had the room for that, was culturally weird. Okay, in Britain, the idea that you would be sleeping in your parents' room when you're a teenager feels shocking. So it comes back to your idea of better, right? We have ideas about what is right and what is wrong, what is appropriate and what is not appropriate. And that changes over time. So in the 1980s, it was common to leave babies in their prams outside shops. Now, there would be child protection queries if you left your baby in a pram outside a shop in what was once upon a time totally normal and nobody thought about it. So those realizations coming to them with curiosity rather than ideas of right or wrong helps you to start to think about how cultures, technology, the way you live, architecture, the way cities are designed, how all of that shapes the way we relate to our babies and are able to relate to our babies and that that has long-term consequences, which is why you can talk about it for hours and hours and hours and hours. And it's hard to do in only a single podcast. We could be here all day. It's just absolutely fascinating (laughs) this. I'm just, my mind is just wandering on to, to, oh, so what about that? And what about that? (laughs) Well, let's keep on track. (laughs) Let's keep on track. Uh, It's fantastic. So a lot of what we've talked about today so far, it highlights to me that there's such a strong link between emotions and behavior. Could you, could you tell us a little bit more about that, about the influence of emotions on our behavior? All behavior is underpinned by an emotional need. Okay, so all behavior has underlying a biological state, right? And just getting that idea lets you get curious. Because sometimes people engage in behavior that we don't like, that is inconvenient, that we think is bad. So if a kid kicks in a window, we can either see that as bad or we can get curious about what did they need What was driving that behavior? What was it that they couldn't talk about their anger in another way? How could they not control it? If a baby is crying, there's an emotional need. If we just see that as a behavior, we don't know to get curious. We don't know how to step in and help. And that's why it really matters. If we understand that behavior is underpinned by an emotional need, we can help. But if we live in a system or a family or an earlier setting or a school or any other setting that doesn't help us to think, I wonder what emotional need is driving that behavior, then we leave children on their own. We leave things worse for them. It influences their development. If I were designing a culture, the very first thing I would drop in was the responsibility of adults to be curious about what emotional needs are driving behavior. Now that doesn't mean that any behavior goes and that kids can get away with anything. Boundaries are important, but so is curiosity in understanding what emotion is driving a behavior. And I think we could all get more curious about that and might be willing to if we understood the sorts of things that we're talking about here. Say we could design a culture and say we did have a culture where curiosity was encouraged and we're encouraging to listen in to, to emotions more. What would that world look like? What would that world look like for our children? What would that world look like for the adults? It would mean that our children experienced the world as trustworthy and safe. When other people listen to your emotions, when they get curious about your behavior, 
even when it's inconvenient. When other people listen to you, you feel safe. Saber-toothed tigers don't listen to you. Saber-toothed tigers want to eat you. So when you're in a saber-toothed tiger state, you're in an anxious state. If we could live more in our teddy bear systems so that other people listen to us, then we would experience the world as trustworthy and safe. And then you would develop stress systems that don't get so anxious, that don't kick off so easily. That means that we could tune into each other and we could be more attuned. So a culture in which we listened more to emotions means that we would raise babies who think the world is a safe place. Am I right in thinking that that would help with that inbuilt resilience that we talk? We hear that word so much, don't we, about resilience. But if that is what we experience in, like you've described there, and it takes me to that really sort of comfy place, that teddy bear and that, oh, that would just be so lovely for all our children. But that then helps and supports that. It's just embedded in our biological makeup around that resilience that we have for later life. Absolutely. Resilience is a biological state and a biological process. And all of those are fancy words. But what I'm trying to highlight is that there is deeper knowledge to be gained than we might presume. So let me give an example. When you have a fight with your partner, for some people that does not freak them out. They know that you'll get back to making up. They don't feel abandoned. They know that things get tense. And so they stay calm even in the middle of a slamming door or silence afterwards. They know that you'll make up. Other people don't have that experience at all. That time after a fight, the not knowing when they'll come back, the raised voices, really puts them into a saber-toothed tiger place. It, in other words, it agitates their stress system terribly. It, their resilience is weaker. So if we had a society that tuned into babies' needs, then we would have more resilience in those scary times later on. People would be less stressed. We'd have fewer mental health problems because our bodies wouldn't be so stressed. And that's interesting to think about in this COVID time it means that some people will be struggling much more with the disconnection brought on by COVID lockdown restrictions than other people. And part of that goes all the way back to their baby experiences. If we knew that and we keep that in mind, we can be more aware of the policy that we develop for COVID, just the way we interact with people on the streets. And we realize that the consequences of our support in COVID right now are going to have long-term biological consequences well into the future. If I think back to my family support days, which was a number of years ago, one of the things that I did see in, in documentation, whether that was referrals into the family support service or just general case notes, etc., where phrases like poor attachment are used to describe the relationship between the infant, the baby, the parent or the main caregiver. And I suppose something that kind of has always crossed my mind is I know we're trying our best to be descriptive and help. But is that the right language to use? And if we use that language, what message does that give to the wider community and the workforce itself? It's a great question because it makes us think about the power of language. The bottom line is we should never, ever use the word poor attachment. Even though no one is intending to do something harmful in do using it, people are just professionals have lapsed into using that and it's become a normal term. And it's been common, but it's not actually theoretically 
accurate and it's not helpful in understanding what's happening for a family. Attachment science identified four key styles of relating to each other. And they're called secure and insecure. And what's happened over the years is that professionals have kind of lapsed into the idea that secure attachment is good and insecure attachment is poor. And so it became a kind of a slang for talking about a way of relating to each other. But it doesn't help our thinking. Here's the trouble. It's true. There are different styles of attachment. And some of them are based more in anxiety than others. In other words, some babies grow up not as trusting of people as other babies. That's true. That's the point of attachment. That's the point of attunement. It's based in trust. And the things that parents and early years staff do shapes babies' capacity to trust. But seeing that as good and bad attachment doesn't help us to realize that what attachment is doing is just coping with the environment that you got. Heading towards something like 50% of people in Britain are insecurely attached. That means they struggle in relationships. That means that they're not as trusting as some other people. That means that they're more anxious about relationships. So trying to think more carefully about what is happening for a family, about what is the mom or the dad able to do to build trust in their baby, what might be making that more difficult actually lets family support staff help families. So using language that helps to push us to think more deeply rather than to evaluate and label is really what we should be aiming for. And that in itself is a whole nother discussion as well. So here's a risk. There will be professionals out there who just heard me say mm, the word poor attachment we should not be using and they know that they used it yesterday in a report. I don't want anybody guilty. I don't want anybody feeling ashamed. What I want is us to get curious about the language that we've come to use that isn't helpful, about the assumptions that we made about how babies develop that isn't helpful. I want us to get curious rather than shut down. How can anyone listening find out more about Connected Baby? Connected Baby is the organization that I set up after I left my full-time academic post in order to try to help the public to understand this information. So we're a small team. We've got a website, which is www.connectedbaby.net. And we have a whole range of resources. So we've got um, especially we've got a set of books, we've got films, which help people to understand all of this information. Um, one of my books is called Sabretooth Tigers and Teddy Bears, The Connected Baby Guide to Attachment. You can get that off the website. We've got a Connected Baby Guide to Connection in Care Homes. And lots of people are like, wow, that's a big difference between them. But what it shows is the importance of connection across the lifespan. We've been running a series of Saturday morning broadcasts throughout lockdown called Tigers and Teddies. Those are on our YouTube channel. You can tune into any of those. We've just released a series of film nights, which help us to think about connection. People can come along to those over the autumn. In other words, the website talks about all the ways that we have tried creatively to help people to think about the importance of connection and the fact that the style of connection that you experience as a baby influences the way that you develop into an adult. And so all of us adults are influenced by the experiences we had as babies. And we connect to baby just exists 
to help us to get our heads around that. You're listening to the Earliest Years of Life podcast, and it's now time for the two-minute takeover. In every podcast, we give our guests two minutes to share a key message on today's topic for practitioners or decision makers. So, Suzanne, are you up for it? What a great opportunity. So, Suzanne, you have two minutes for your key message starting now. The key thing I would love professionals to understand is the impact of relationships just to remember that every single thing you do and every single policy that you create either enhances relationships or interferes with them it's really easy in our time to become focused on tasks rather than on connection and whatever i can do to help people to shift their attention back to connection is my aim let me give an example Very often in nursery, I hear stories that changing nappies becomes a task because we need to get through it quickly, or drop off is a task, we need to get the child into a setting. Those are all connection moments. And so if we understand that relationships matter, even while we're changing nappies, even while we're doing drop off, even while we're coming into a classroom, relationships matter at every single one of those moments. And we should have policies that help to promote that understanding and to facilitate those relationships. It's not hard. The key thing is the awareness and the will to make it happen. So that's my two-minute mic takeover. If we can put relationships at the center of everything we do, we serve our children in the way that I think we want to. Your two minutes are up, Suzanne. It's been absolutely great chatting with you today. Really thought-provoking, fantastic discussion. And I'm sure that we'll be in touch with you very soon. I've been delighted to be with you. And just to echo that, I think we've got such a wonderful relationship with you here at Better Start Bradford. And it's just been, it's been delightful to have you as our first guest. I love the leadership that you guys are showing and trying to help people to have these insights. So one of the things that really stood out for me in this episode is giving yourselves permission to be curious. Yeah, I'd really agree with that because that leads me to start thinking about the voice of the child and maybe that's the next topic that we discuss, but that really stood out today about that curiosity. What is it like for that child in that environment? Absolutely, and whether that's curiosity as a parent or curiosity as a practitioner, I think giving yourself that permission almost says that I don't have to know everything right now. I think that did, it really came across from her about that curiosity and wonder. And that really fills me with that that warmth, really. And that's how you should feel about your child and really want to explore your child and what it feels like through their eyes and what they're experiencing. And like we said, there's no right or wrong, but we know some of the science now that we can really guide our parenting or our professional advice. Thank you for listening to Earliest Years of Life, our very first podcast here at Better Start Bradford. And please don't forget to hit subscribe and rate it as well. To find out more about how we support baby and toddler development across this part of West Yorkshire, head over to betterstartbradford.org.uk. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.